So I'll be reading from 2 Corinthians, it's chapter 3, and we're starting in verse 12 through to 18, the end of the chapter. So 2 Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That is the word of the Lord. We have over the last few weeks covered things like the messenger of God and uh, indeed how a messenger of God should live and in the way he or she lives also reflect uh, what he or she is proclaiming, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then of course last week we covered in the last sermon, we covered uh, the importance of the actual message, the actual gospel. Uh, the whole thing that teaches us what it means to be a Christian. See, all of what you and I are today really rests in the message of salvation. That is what we are. That's what we should be. And if that be the case, then today's question will, of course, become really, really important for you and I as we look at it. Or maybe more plainly, the question you need to look at is, Do you truly believe in your heart of hearts that Jesus is God and that he died and he rose again to bring you new hope and give you eternal life? Is that what you believe? But let us pray that the Holy Spirit will open our hearts and our minds that we will actually understand what we have been given here by Paul. Let us pray. Our loving Father, we do come to ask that you will give us great understanding and great knowledge of the word of of Paul that he has written down, given to him by yourself. We pray, Lord, that this will take root and will grow strongly in our hearts, that we will change the way we live, that each day will be better than the one before. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul starts here in verse 12, he says, therefore, obviously the therefore refers to what we have just read in the the previous chapters and verses, because what Paul has given us in the previous chapters and verses, and since we have such hope, we are bold. Think in terms of what we are told in Acts 14, when we read about Paul and Barnabas that are going out together to share the gospel with the world. In verse 3, So Paul and Barnabas 
spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. We also know that they were threatened. They had been gravely mistreated, both of them, and yet they proclaimed the message boldly. These men had their hope and their faith firmly anchored in the promise that they had been given and a covenant that they understood, the covenant given to them by Jesus. And they feared not any earthly reprisals. They just boldly proclaimed what they knew to be the truth. They had understood that this was not about them. This was all about and for God. That was their life. It was in response to the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is important for us, however, to comprehend what the word Paul used when he wrote bold fully means in context of living. It becomes very important for you and me. The word parousia describes courageous, confident, outspoken proclamation of the gospel without reluctance or wavering no matter how severe the opposition may be. Is that us? Is that how courageous you and I are in this world? They would in fact preach the message of hope found and contained in a new covenant without hesitation. That sort of forthrightness was different. It was different to what had happened in the times of old. In verse 13, we are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while their radiance was fading away. See, what Paul is offering us here is Moses did not preach, preach a merciful uh, gospel he, uh, and, and, and a paid gospel for the covenant. He, he, he had brought to the people of Israel a message of strictness of rules. He had given them the rules to, by which they were to live, a regulation set that none of them could possibly ever live up to. So in terms of what he is telling them, it is a condemnation that is awaiting them. The whole of the old covenant was a set of rules that says this is how you live or you will be condemned. That was the message that Moses was given by God to give to his people. Of course unless they fully placed their faith in the Lord. And that faith was what faith was spoken of when we read about Abraham. It started with Abraham, didn't it? Their father, our father, who was and had, after all, had been declared righteous by God, by faith alone. And nothing, nothing that he had ever done. And Paul explains in verse 14... But their minds were made dull. For to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. We know only two of the people that originally set out from Egypt in those days that actually ever made it into the promised land. All the rest of the people that had left Egypt died in the desert. And this was due to the fact that their minds were dull, that they, they had not quite understood, they had not believed 
They were rebellious. See, not even Moses was allowed to enter the promised land. And yet, we do know that he was, in fact, fully restored. So there was a time between the people crossed the river and a time when Moses went up the mountain and died, where he was then fully restored by our merciful and gracious Lord, God. And it all must have happened before he died. But we don't know that. We don't have any writings about that. What we do know is he was restored because we, after all, he did appear with Jesus and Elijah at the transfiguration that we read about in Matthew 17. Moses was there, a man of God. The Israelites lived in the Old Testament times for over 1,400 years after Moses. There had been some good years, but mostly they had been living a rebellious life as a nation. We can today read about this history of Israel and we read about the world from the time of Adam and Eve even. The arrival of sin into the world and the consequences that comes from that sin. This bog that Nina was talking about. And so did the Israelites. They had all the five books that Moses wrote, the Pentateuch, listing everything they needed to know and instructions in how they needed to live their lives. All of history is one big long statement of love and mercy and sins and forgiveness and restoration. But the covenant they lived under was both impossible and harsh, whilst at the same time being an incredible lesson for us all as to our complete inability to live a life of righteousness. We just can't do it. And then... We go through the 400 years of the intertestamental period. The time after Nehemiah that had sorted out the, the life of Israel. Where God doesn't speak to his people. For 400 years there's no communication. He's leaving them to their own devices. And in that time what they do is they then write the rules and regulations based on how they, without the guiding of the Spirit or without the guiding of God, they write down how they understand God's word given to them through the writings of Moses. So they mix their understanding and their will into all of these things. And of course we know what happens in such circumstances. If you read the Bible and you don't have the guiding of the Holy Spirit and everything becomes basically foolishness. As we are told in 1 Corinthians 2.14. It says the person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God. But considers them foolishness. And cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. This problem is still a problem today. In verse 15. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. All that, however, changes. Once you call on the Lord and are guided by his Holy Spirit. Once God puts the Holy Spirit in you, things do change. In verse 16, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. It becomes clear. In other words, the veil, the blurry bit of the Bible is gone 
and we get to understand what we read. We get to understand not only what who Jesus is, but we get to understand who we are. That gives us clarity. Verse 17, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. John uh, wrote in, uh, in, in chapter 8, 32, he says, Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That is what we talk about in freedom, the freedom through Jesus Christ. And in John 8, 36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That is a proper freedom, not a freedom, not a... Uh, we talk about when we have a world peace, uh, that we negotiate a world peace. It is a truce. It's not lasting. It only lasts till the next time we have a fight. It's like this. The blessing of the new covenant comes only by God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Non-negotiable. In all the mist that avowal the truth in the Old Testament and the covenant are then blown away like a fog in the high wind. That is just, it all disappears. In verse 18, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. Really? Paul here speaks of what ought to be. He speaks of what perfection should be. It is that we are the reflection of the Lord's glory. Just imagine it, you and me. Paul, in fact, speaks of what it should be. When people see you and I, they're supposed to see the Lord's glory. They're supposed to see in our lives and the way we speak and act, they're supposed to see the goodness and the greatness of God. I find this, personally, unbelievably challenging. And I know it isn't true most of the time, if ever, in fact, but I persevere all the same. And that's what we are called to do. I read about Paul. I read about people like Nehemiah and obviously Moses and people like Daniel. And we read about men that lived for God, men and women, women like Ruth, that have given us a role models, and yet they also didn't give the clear reflection of who Jesus is. But that will come one day. It will happen. But when I say clear reflection, I speak of things like, just imagine it, it's a polished piece of steel that gives you a kind of reflection when you look into it, but it's still blurred, not as clear as what we today have in a mirror where we clearly see who we are. That is indeed what the new covenant is compared to the old covenant. The old covenant was the steel plate. Today we have the mirror. It gives us clarity because we have the Holy Spirit. We now have every Christian. We have a Holy Spirit revealing the Lord to us. And there is no excuse left for us. We have run out. In fact, as the very next sentence tells us, we are in fact transformed. In verse 18, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. A believer's transformation into the likeness of Jesus Christ 
it is something Paul speaks of often. It's a theme he runs with most of the time. In Romans, he wrote in 12.2, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and his perfect will. Or as he also reminds us to the church in Colossae, in 3.10, and have put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. It's a transformation. Again, speaking of the reflection of his glory. So when we read sentences like, are being transformed into his likeness, it's an ongoing event, almost an unending event. It is the sanctification of us, except for the fact, of course, that at a given point it will reach its conclusion. At the arrival of Jesus Christ on that last day, it will be brought to completion. We will be fully transformed in his likeness and we will be like him. This is the time we will be done. This is at the very, very heart of the new covenant. It's transformative. It is life-giving. It is indeed an eternal blessing out of the love, the mercy, and the grace of God alone. Ceremonial, sacramental uh, religion offers nothing to the new covenant believers. All of those issues simply goes away. It does not provide us with justification. It has no power to sanctify, and it will not lead to glorification. The Christian life does not consist of rituals, but it is based in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in a ceremonial, but in its simplicity. The purity of worship and the devotion to him who died for us. And Paul did not give the Corinthian church this warning, but he, he has written it down for them and he wrote it down for you and I. And it is a warning. And maybe we should ponder this too in our hearts. In verse 3 he writes, But I am afraid, just, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. As believers, with a single-minded focus on the scriptures, we will see God's glory reflected in the face of Jesus Christ and be transformed into his image by the powerful internal work of the Lord, of his Holy Spirit. That's where it happens. It's by the Spirit in your hearts. And we read about this in Ephesians in 3.16. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being. It all happens inside and comes out in the reflection. When we take the time to truly consider the enormity and the power that is contained in the new covenant given to us through Christ and what the Lord Jesus Christ had to endure and suffer that all this might come to fruition. Then we are really in constant quandary, I would suggest to you. What I am as an individual 
having been elected by my creator God, God before the time of creation. He chose us before creation of the world by name and he put your name in the book of life back then. That we be granted so much grace and mercy that my God would sacrifice his one and only son to bring me home. That we may be with him. What I'm doing each and every day is probably not what I should be doing. But what am I doing each and every day in response to this miracle that he has created in me? by removing my heart of stone and giving me a heart of flesh. What is it that I'm doing that is in direct rebellion to him? And why? Why am I continuously doing these dumb things? It is simply that I haven't spent enough time to read and get to know him and to get to know the love that he so sincerely gave me that will cause me to change, change more. We also know that we are incapable of doing all this, of course, in our own strength, that is, but then we also know we have been given, given through his Holy Spirit to dwell deep in our hearts, to teach us and guide us, and in fact, he will also rebuke us. We know this. And yet, the question we're going to end with is, you have the Holy Spirit. Are you listening? Are you listening to him? Are you taking his guidance each and every day? He is the one that brings the new covenant to life inside of us. Let us pray. Our loving and gracious Father, we we find it difficult to put into words our thankfulness for what you have done and are doing constantly in our lives. We pray, Lord, that by your Spirit that we will be more willing to listen, more willing to learn and to change, that indeed your glory may be reflected in both what we say and what we do. I pray this in Jesus' name, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.